First Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, we read, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Paul continues to give instructions to young Timothy. And the chapter, remember, began with instructions to slaves and masters. Or what we might say employers and employees in verses 1 and 2. Then there were warnings about troublemakers and false teachers in verses 3 through 5. And now there's going to be broad instructions to all. And eventually to the rich in verses 6 through 19. Paul wrote of the false teachers who suppose that godliness is a means of gain in verse 5. And so Paul now will contrast that thought, godliness as a means of gain, with the thought of godliness as a means of contentment in verse 6. Paul has already written in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses, uh, in, in verse 7, but reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself toward godliness or discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. When Paul wrote those words to Timothy, and he uses that expression, exercise or discipline, in the original language, the word exercise meant to orient yourself or to take the full measure of the resources that are available to you and then put them towards godliness. That's a structured, organized goal towards achieving godliness. So why does he bring this up? Because godliness requires training and discipline. We're to develop the inner qualities and virtues that reflect the fruit of the Spirit and the character of Christ. And the fruit of the Spirit, of course, and the character of Christ is spoken of in the book of Galatians chapter 5. It becomes the significant acquisition of his character that creates within us a sense of contentment. Paul warns people who want to use godliness as a means of physical and financial gain that they will remain discontent. Money doesn't bring contentment. So the instructions that Paul is giving is, is once again that it is Christ who brings contentment. And a godly life is a contented life. You'll remember Paul told the Philippians while he was in jail, 
I have learned in whatever state that I am, therewith to be content. He's not talking about the state of Texas and the state of Colorado or the state of New Mexico. He's not even talking about Philippi. He's talking about an attitude in your mind and in your heart. In the ancient world, the Greeks and the Romans had a sense of what it meant to be content or even the Greek word for contentment. In that world, as well as our own, contentment meant self-sufficiency. So Paul is going to take the word self-sufficiency and he's going to turn it on its head and remind us that contentment for the Christian is having our sufficiency in the Lord and having it in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul clearly doesn't believe that our sufficiency is in ourself. Paul's repeated declaration is that our sufficiency is found in the Lord Jesus. Again, in Philippians 4.13, he'll later write, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so he begins with godliness as contentment's secret and source in verse 6. He says, now, godliness with contentment is great gain. Again, why does Paul mean when he uses the term godliness? Very simply, I think Paul means actions that are consistent with God's character, with Christ's character, with the fruit of the Spirit. And so it is actions consistent with the character of God the work of Christ, and then how it's lived out in our very real lives. So the Lord called Joshua and he called David men after his own heart. That means men who reflected his character and walked according to his will. One of the ways that we might find some insight about thinking about the word godliness is to think about the opposite of the word godliness ungodliness the word ungodliness obviously means things that are absent god things that are absent the character of god the revelation of god the grace of god the mercy of god godliness incorporates christ likeness god centeredness which leads to a Christ-centered life and a Christ-centered living. There was a guy on the radio who I used to listen to quite a bit named Steve Brown. He had this great voice and he used to say, a little is as much as a lot if it's enough. I love that. A little is as much as a lot if it's enough, I already told you that on Sundays, um, my, my Nona, my grandma Geraci, would have us all over for spaghetti and meatballs and all the food you could imagine. And she would always ask every time, everyone who ever came, do you want more? And if you said yes, she gave you a lot more. 
And if you said no, she gave you a little more. And that's the way the Lord is. John Balgai said, contentment is a pearl of great price. And whoever procures it at the expense of 10,000 desires makes a wise and a happy choice, unquote. So the word contentment is an interesting Greek word. It's auto, kais. It is a word that in that language meant to be completely sufficient. It was the idea of needing absolutely nothing. It carried with it the idea of fulfillment, satisfaction, completion. In the book of Colossians, Paul makes the unbelievable statement that you are complete in Christ. Not incomplete. You are complete. So Paul provides the secret of contentment, godliness, coupled with contentment. That means a character that reflects God coupled with fulfillment, satisfaction, completion. The Life Application Bible Commentary adds, quote, to have contentment in Christ requires four decisions about the events and possessions of our life. They write, number one, we must focus on what God has already allowed us to have. And number two, we must disregard what we don't have. Number three, we must refuse to covet what others may have. And number four, we must give thanks to God for each and all of his gifts. That's from chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. The writer adds, if we fail to make these decisions, our contentment will diminish. And he's exactly right. If we focus on what God has given to us, or if we refuse to focus on what God has given to us, then our sense of fulfillment, our sense of satisfaction, our sense of contentment will grow less and less and less. And let's just talk about that just for a moment. When he talks about focus on what you have in Christ, let's talk about that just for a second. What has God allowed you to have right at this very moment? Health? Wealth? A material provision? But what if our focus becomes what God has given us not just simply in terms of health or wealth or material provisions. What if our focus now shifts to what God has given to us in Christ Jesus the Lord? When God comes and gives you the gift of eternal life and gives you Jesus, what does he give you? Just on the most superficial basis, just, just literally as you think about it, you're forgiven your sins in Christ, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6. You're reconciled with God in Christ, Romans 5, 10. You're known by God, redeemed by God, bought with a price. You belong to God. You can say with certainty, I'm saved, I'm accepted, I'm free, I'm secure, I'm sealed. If you begin to focus on everything that God has given to you, 
in Christ, guess what you find happening? Your contentment and satisfaction and fulfillment, it grows and grows and grows. And then, of course, forget about what you don't have. St. John of the Cross was a Spanish Catholic mystic who was a major figure in the counter-reformation movement. Although I certainly don't agree with everything that he said or did, he did say something that was very interesting. He wrote, quote, The children of Israel did not find in the manna all the sweetness and strength they might have found in it, not because the manna didn't contain them, but because they longed for meat. The reason why I quote that quote is because it becomes a type and a picture of the challenge that we face when instead of remembering what God has given to us, we add the words, but I want more. What more do you want? I want more than Christ. I want more than forgiveness. I want more than hope. I want more than reconciliation. I want more, more, more. We easily forget what we have when we begin to long for what we don't have. And then there's a growing sense of discontentment. So not only do we focus on what you have in Christ, not only do you forget what you don't have, but then you forsake covetousness. Remember, covetousness is wanting more and more of what you already have enough of. I have to have 301 pairs of shoes. No, I have to have 365 pairs of shoes. I have to have this, I have to have that, I have to have this, I have to have that. Covetousness is the desire to have not only what you have enough of, but then it becomes a, a, a sickness where you begin to look at what others have and you somehow feel less because someone else has more. We are right to be content with what we have. And we are wrong to want to possess what others have. And finally, we forever thank God for his gifts. We magnify the Lord. We praise him. We give him thanks now, again, think about the context of what Paul has been talking about, the false prophets. Remember, they were, in verse 5, preoccupied with useless wranglings of, of men of corrupt minds, destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Spiritual gain? That can't be what he's talking about because Paul would never, ever criticize a person who wants to acquire spiritual gain in Christ. They're talking about material gain. And remember he said, withdraw yourself from those people. Why does Paul say that? Because they're motivated by money, by financial gain, by earthly profits. All these things Paul is going to point out are going to be left behind. You've heard this statement over and over again when somebody dies. Someone will ask the question, 
what did he leave? And the answer is always the same. Everything. He left everything. Whatever gains we might experience in this life mean nothing apart from Christ. And so Paul will move on to the subject of necessities, contentment, satisfaction. It was someone who said, when material treasures become our focus, we quit contributing to our eternal bank account. Whatever gains we may experience in this life mean nothing if they cause us spiritual bankruptcy. And so that's why in verse 7 he says, for we brought nothing into this world and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. Paul is going to club the false prophet with the hard facts. You brought nothing into the world. You won't be able to transfer your wealth. You won't take your assets with you into the next world. Kings and pharaohs may have demanded that their servants and treasures be buried with them. But make no mistake about it. Gold and silver will not make the journey with you. Usually at this point I love to insert a story about a guy who's died and he's given instructions to his attorney about the disposition of his estate and how he wanted uh, to divvy up his, his wealth and have people put the money into his casket. And so he said, I, I, I ordered my estate liquidated. It was a million dollars. And he gave three different people 333000 plus dollars. And the first person puts the money in the casket. And the second person puts the money in the casket. And the attorney writes a check. <laughs> and puts it in the casket. No, we laugh because we get it. We know that where that person's going and what he's going to do with the resources, it's not going to have any value. It has been rightly said, have you ever seen a hearse carrying a U-Haul? I know, I, I, I kind of want to do, I want to kind of rent a hearse just so I can attach a U-Haul, just so people will look and go, I wonder what he's hauling in that. I'm wondering what he's hauling in that thing. We all know if it had a beginning, it's going to have an end. Money and houses and land and clothing and cars and treasures and jewels. If it can be broken, if it can be stolen, if it can be burned, if it can be ruined, you can't take it with you. We're born into this world naked and vulnerable and helpless we have two things when we come into this world, our bodies and our souls, and we rely on our parents to feed us and clothe us and change us. And there's a certain exit, a journey that leads to death. We exit the world the same way we entered it. Our body remains and our soul returns to the God who gave us our soul. And this is why Paul could with complete confidence write, and having food and clothing 
with these we shall be content. In other words, in between birth and in between death is that little check mark that you see on the tombstone. That's your life. I've said this often because it's such a great illustration. There's a a tombstone in Tombstone. And the tombstone, Tombstone, Arizona. And the tombstone reads, Pause, my friend, as you walk by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. Prepare, my friend, to follow me. And somebody scratched underneath it. To follow you is not my intent until I know which way you went. <laughs> That's exactly right. But Paul talking about the difference between birth and death and the little thing that is inside of that little check mark, that's your life. And Paul points out there are luxuries and there are necessities. We need food. We need clothing. I I actually really like the King James Version in this instance where it uses the term and having food and raiment. The reason why I like the word raiment better, it's literally the Greek word covering. And I think it applies to a physical covering, you know, something to clothe your body. I think it also is a reference to a shelter, if you will, a covering for your head and your body, a a place to live. But I'm going to suggest that it might even have the more profound sense of a covering for sin and guilt, for having food and clothing or covering. What do you really need? What is it that you really need to sustain life? The necessities. Matthew Henry wrote a very long time ago. He said, if a man has enough to carry him through this world, he need desire no more. His godliness will be his great gain. Then Matthew Henry writes, Godliness is itself great gain. It is profitable for all things. He writes, Wherever there is true godliness, there will be contentment, unquote. And then he writes, Christian contentment is all the wealth in the world. He writes, All truly godly people have learned with Paul, I have learned in whatever state I am therewith to be content. William Barclay adds, quote, It is not that Christianity pleads for poverty. There's no special virtue in being poor. There's no happiness in having to struggle to make ends meet. But Christianity does plead for two things. Number one, it pleads for the realization that it is never in the power of things to bring happiness. And number two, it pleads for the concentration upon the things which are permanent, the things that a man can take with him in the end when he dies. And what is it that you can take with you? If you can grasp it, if you can taste it, if you can touch it, if you can smell it, you can't take it with you. The only thing that you can take with you are the people who are around you. In this sense, in the sense that they are 
eternal spirit beings who are going to survive death and live somewhere forever and ever. Paul's point doesn't guarantee that every believer will never suffer, will never experience deprivation. That wasn't Paul's experience. That's why he said in whatever state that I could be content. He said, I know how to have a lot and I know how to have a little. I read the bizarre story of a king who was suffering from a malady and he was advised by his astrologist that he would be cured if he could find the shirt of a contented man and then if it were brought to the king and he put it on, it would cure him. And so people searched the far reaches of the king's kingdom to find such a man. And after a long and difficult search, they finally found a person who was truly happy and content. But he didn't possess a shirt. I know. What do you say? And so Paul writes in verse 9, riches contentments and contentment sorrow. He says in verse 9, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare or trap is the right word, a baited trap and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and, and perdition. So when Paul writes this, but those who desire to be rich, fall into temptation and a snare. It's usually expressed this way. If anyone has ever said to you, or you yourself have ever said, I want to be rich. I want to win the lotto. How many of you ever heard someone say, look, if I could win the Powerball or whatever it's called, and, and if I could win 100 or 200 or 300 million dollars, I would give 10% to the church. What's the right answer? No, you wouldn't. If you don't give now, you won't give later. I want to earn a billion dollars. Just a million doesn't simply do what it used to do. In spite of Paul's warnings, most people still believe that money can buy you happiness. And even though in your mind and in your heart you know that it's not true, sometimes you still toy with the idea that it might be true. It is true that rich people sometimes use their resources to serve the Lord, but most don't. So here the emphasis isn't just on the rich, it's, it's on those who, look, read it for yourself, those who desire riches. The contrast, of course, is between the desire for godliness and the desire for riches. And that's the contrast in the comparison. As Paul has been instructing Timothy, there are those who want to honor God, who want to follow the Lord, who want to cultivate spiritual disciplines in their life that will reflect the character of Christ. And others say, you know what? That's really not the thing that's going to preoccupy me. I'm going to preoccupy making a lot of money. And so when Paul says, but those who desire, read the word for desire as will. But those who will 
to be rich. In what sense? It becomes the sum and the substance and the focus of their mental and emotional energies. That's what it's talking about. Their first preoccupation isn't with Jesus, but it's with riches or it's with money. And one of the ways that you can tell is to do the test. And I think you know what the test is. The test is, when you wake up in the morning, what's the first thing or person that you think about? What is it that you live your life for? When you lay your head on the pillow, what is the last thing that you think about? Because make no mistake about it, what you get up thinking about, what you live for through the day, what you go to bed at night thinking about, that is what you will to do. The person who desires to be rich or wills to be rich is the person who takes their resources and preoccupies themselves. The vast majority of their attention is directed towards securing wealth, managing wealth, maintaining wealth, their attention with wealth, and invariably it begins and ends with wealth. And again, the person who invariably has that preoccupation falls into a temptation. And a snare, read, trap. Second Corinthians chapter 8 verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. The riches that he's talking about is his glory in heaven. He divests himself and takes on the semblance of a servant. In verse 10 it says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. When you read that text, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's interesting because most people misinterpret the verse for some reason they quote the verse the love of money is the root of all evil but that's not what the text is saying the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil some suggest that money is neutral and there are some compelling arguments for it some would say that it's neither good nor bad But I'm going to suggest to you that that might not be true. And the reason why I'm going to suggest to you that that might not be true is because does money contain within itself something inherently corrupt, something broken, something defiled? In order to answer that question, you have to ask yourself an even harder question. And that is, what is money? What is that? You know, you tend to think that, well, that's what you pull out of your pocket or your purse. It's those little crumply green pieces of paper. But remember what those crumply green pieces of paper are. It is a note. It's a promissory note. It's a transaction. It's, it's a commitment to exchange something for something else. Jesus called money unrighteous mammon in Luke chapter 16 verse 9 and then again in verse 11 Paul called it 
filthy lucre. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3, and again in Titus chapter 1, verse 7. Now again, for the person who says that money is morally neutral, they'll typically argue that it's like anything else. That it's not inherently good or evil, but that it can be used for something that's inherently good or evil. And I can see how that suggestion might sound plausible, especially if you use it in terms of like the necessities that we've already talked about. Do human beings need food and shelter and clothing? The answer is yes. But when we think about what the Bible says about food, is it possible for food to become sinful? Eating is not a sin, but gluttony is a sin. At what point does nourishment become gluttony? Imagine you come to a place in your life where you're full and you're satisfied. The next bite is the one that's probably gluttony. Is it wrong to drink? No, but can you drink in such a way that you dishonor God? I think that the answer is yes. Is sexual expression sinful in and of itself? No, but can you have sex in such a way that you dishonor God? I think that the answer is yes. So how do we apply that principle to this issue of money? We use it every day to pay our bills, to provide for our needs. We use money to plead our case, to protect the innocent, to uphold justice. I think that part of the point that's being made is do you control your money or does your money control you? Are you in charge of it or is it in charge of you? You see, people who are controlled by an insatiable appetite for more, they typically become, become controlled by something that in the end will never satisfy. So imagine a person has a preoccupation with eating or a preoccupation with drinking or whatever the preoccupation might be. But whatever that preoccupation is, you typically will think if I have just a little more, I will be satisfied. But the Bible says that's not true. In order to master money, in order to be its master, rather than its slave, you have to get rid of the desire to want to be rich. And I'm going to admit to you that this is hard. We live in a culture that requires money, demands money, functions with money. But what I'm not willing to admit or explain away is the Bible's demand and command whatever else it is that we think about money, whatever else we think about money, it isn't to just simply ignore it. It isn't to refuse it. It isn't to refrain from it. But it must mean to refuse to love it. So what happens when a person's drug of choice is Not food or alcohol, but money and affluence. What happens when a person craves 
more and more wealth and more and more possessions? Do they wind up with more and more happiness and contentment? Are the wealthy people of the world, in your experience, the happiest people and the most content people in the world? You know, it's interesting. We know that money can be used to meet needs to further the gospel. We also know that it can become the focus and fascination of people to the point where Christ and the gospel and eternal matters just simply fade away. Some people are addicted to gold. All Ten Commandments can easily be broken over the issue of money. For the love of money and the desire for it, to have it, and the promises that it holds out, people have denied God. They blasphemed his name. They've stolen. They've lied. They've murdered. They've committed adultery. The list could go on and on and on. And so Paul writes, some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. You know what the image is? It's of a sharp thorn. The image is pricking your finger on a thorn or piercing your foot with a nail or lancing your body with a spear. A lust for material things makes it easy to wander off the beaten path of discipleship. And so the person in love with money looks for pleasure and then finds sorrow and pain. And that's the challenge. Imagine how frustrating it is when you want something so much and it produces not what you want, but exactly the opposite. It was Abraham Lincoln, he certainly wasn't a theologian, who said, you can tell what God thinks of money when you see the people he gives it to. My friends at Rose Publishing have a wonderful pamphlet entitled, what does the Bible say about money? And it also serves as chapter 5 in a book entitled Being Jesus' Disciple. But in that booklet and in that book, they have a list of do's and don'ts. I, I, I don't have time to list all of them, but I, I want to give you a few. In the do's and don'ts of money, quickly they say, on the don't column, don't love it. And they cite the scripture here in Luke 16, 13. Don't think it will last, Jeremiah 17, 11. Don't think it'll save you, Psalm 37, 16. Don't serve it, Matthew 6, 24. Don't envy others who have it, Exodus 6, 24. Don't hoard it, James 5, 3. Don't be foolish with it, Proverbs 17, 16. Don't think it will completely compensate for turmoil, Proverbs 15, 16. Don't rely on it, Psalm 62, 10. 
Don't think it will buy God's blessing, Acts 8, 9. Don't use it for fraud, Micah 2, 2. Don't oppress people with it, Proverbs 22, 16. Don't steal it, Titus 2, 9. Don't give special honor to those who have it, James 2, 2. Don't use it for evil, Ezekiel 8, 12. Don't extort it, Ezekiel 22, 29. And then in the do column, it says... Do love the Lord, Deuteronomy 6, 5. Do only the things of God that will last, Matthew 19, 21, and we might put here. Do remember only God can save you, Psalm 27, 1. Do serve the Lord, 1 Peter 5, 2. Do be content with what you have here, Luke 3, 14. Do remember that it is God who provides, Job 1, 20. Do use money wisely, Proverbs 31, 10. Do find peace in God, Romans 15, 13. Do rely on the Lord, Proverbs 18, 10. Do find blessings for living for God, 2 Corinthians 6. 10. Do repay your debts, Psalm 37, 21. Do work, 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 work to get it, 2 Thessalonians 3, 9. Don't steal it or expect it from others. Do handle it justly, Leviticus 25. Do give to those in need, Matthew 5, 41. Do be trustworthy with it, Proverbs 11.1. 1. Do honor God with it, Proverbs 3.9. John Wesley famously said about money, Get all you can. Save all you can. Give all you can. You'll notice that if you leave out any portion of that, it becomes corrupt and wicked, and perverse. If you just simply say, get all you can and stop. If you fail to save all you can and stop. Or give all you can and stop. The truth is you won't have anything to give unless you have something to get. So how can you avoid the pitfalls and traps and seductions how can you live satisfied, fulfilled, content? It won't happen until you're able to pray, pray this very simple prayer. And it is very simple. It's easy to pray. It's absolutely difficult to believe and do. But if you believe it, and you do it, you'll be fine. If you're able to pray, Lord, give me everything that you want me to have. And Lord, be willing, have me be willing to take everything from me that you don't want me to have. So how can you find peace and contentment? It's truly desiring to say, Lord, I'll have whatever you want me to have. And I'll do without whatever you want me to do without. Remember, 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 everything comes from the Lord. Money can't buy salvation or generate godliness. Riches won't last. Money won't satisfy the heart and the soul and the spirit that's been made new in Christ. 
It may scratch an itch and it may satisfy an urge, but it will always be a sick substitute for the presence of Jesus in your life. And then ask yourself, am I willing to disobey Jesus to get more money? And so remember what Paul's reminded us of and what the Bible reminds us of. Don't show favoritism to the rich. Money always carries with it a responsibility. Ron Blue said something powerful. He said, quote, every spending decision is a spiritual decision. It's not just a material decision. It's a spiritual decision. And when faced with the choice of pursuing God or pursuing money, if you make the choice to pursue money rather than God, you might wind up with neither. And now we're back to what we originally said at the beginning of the passage. Paul writes, now godliness with contentment That is great gain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you and praise you for Jesus. Lord, we know that we've been instructed not to use money dishonestly or for evil or extort it or be greedy for it or worry about it. Lord, you've called us to be trustworthy with it, to honor you with it, to earn it, to give it intentionally. And in the end, to really, truly believe that you'll take care of us. Lord, we pray that we would never use that as an excuse for laziness but that with diligence, Lord, we could set ourselves at the task of honoring you and acting honorably. Lord, we pray that, again, when we are faced with false teachers and false teaching who live for money, whose whole life seems to be a preoccupation with money, Lord, we pray that we would remember the words of Paul and the testimony that's been given to us in the Bible of what we should do and what we shouldn't do. And again, Lord, I pray that you would make us content, satisfied, fulfilled, complete in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Thank you.